Good morning, everyone. This summer, we've continued preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and this morning, our sermon text is Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. So you can follow along in the bulletin, a pew Bible, or just listen while I read from Mark 1, 11 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. We know that you are able to use your word to teach us and convict us, and so we pray that you would do that for each of us this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So racing is something that I love to do. Most of you probably know that about me. The anticipation and excitement of a race day environment is something that I absolutely love. Whether I'm the one racing or if I'm just watching, every year in October, the Chicago Marathon, whether I'm running it or not, it's the most exciting day. I've loved it ever since I was a kid in elementary school running cross-country races. And there's an excitement. There are these nerves and anxiety that you can feel in the air whether it's a 5K or a marathon or something even crazier, everyone is on, everyone's just nervous. They're excited. They're ready to go. And so as a probably slightly too competitive person, right before the race starts, there's moments where I start to size up everyone around me. I start to look and say, he looks like he is very fast. <laughs> he has a really nice bike. He looks like he swims with Michael Phelps. There's these comparisons that start to happen, and I try and decide who looks like they really belong and who looks like they don't belong. Who do I have to be worried about and who do I not have to be worried about? There's a mental game that starts long before the physical race begins. Yet at the moment that the race starts, whenever that whistle or gun or cannon goes off, none of that matters. It's just who can go the fastest, who can get to the finish line first. That's how you show that you really belong, not by anything, the way that you look, but by how fast you can go. And so our story this morning is a story of Jesus arriving at a place that he truly belongs. Like Michael Phelps arriving at a pool or the Queen of England arriving um, in London, he arrives in Jerusalem, the center of political and religious life, and this is the place where he belongs. But it's also a story of the disciples trying to make Jesus look like he belongs. It's a story of the disciples trying to make him look like the king and savior of their nation that they want him to be. 
So our narrative picks up with Jesus and his disciples. They're journeying from Jericho, where Jesus had just healed a blind man named Bartimaeus, and they're heading up to Jerusalem. Now the journey from Jericho to Jerusalem was not an easy one. It began at about 800 feet below sea level, and they would climb to about 3,000 feet above sea level. So it would probably be better to describe this as a hike, as the Mount of Olives is about 1,000 feet higher than anywhere in the Midwest, though that's not saying much. Jesus and the disciples hiked these 12 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem, up a dry and dusty desert road. Jesus and his disciples hiked. They'd been heading towards Jerusalem for some time now. And as they journeyed, Jesus was doing his ministry, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, and announcing the coming of this new kingdom. So as Jesus and his disciples reached the top of the Mount of Olives, as they finished their hike up this mountain, up this dry and dusty desert road, at the top of the mountain of olives, all the desert turns into this area of lush vegetation, this beautiful region. And as you get to the top, you can see and look down on this whole valley, this valley that Jerusalem is located in. And anyone who's climbed a mountain before knows this feeling. You're climbing and climbing and climbing, step after step. All the hard work and all the sweat pays off when you get to see that beautiful view. And the disciples in Jesus would have experienced this same thing, hiking and hiking and hiking, and then bam, you can see the whole valley laid out in front of them, the Kidron Valley, and Jerusalem down in the valley shining. The disciples must have been thrilled to reach the top, but this experience actually just wasn't their own. There were thousands of others with them. It was the Passover, it was the Passover feast celebrating the holiday when the Israelite people were freed from Egypt 1,500 years earlier. So thousands of people were descending upon Jerusalem from all different directions. And many of them would have been coming up the same road that the disciples and Jesus were coming up. And so for the disciples, what could be better than traveling to Jerusalem during a feast with their miracle-working leader? For them, it was the day that they would enter Jerusalem with the one that they had come to believe would be their future king. Three years of time with Jesus was about to reach its culmination. It was about to reach its payoff. Jesus was going to reign. But one thing must have been lingering in their minds. Recall with me the interaction between Jesus and his disciples, and specifically Peter, three chapters earlier in Mark 8. If you remember it, it's in Mark 8. Jesus asked Peter point blank. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responded by saying, you are the Christ, meaning you are the Messiah. You're the one who's going to save and redeem the Israelite people. For the first eight chapters, for the first half of the Gospel of Mark, the disciples couldn't quite figure out who Jesus was. A common theme throughout the whole Gospel of Mark is this conflict between Jesus and his disciples. And much of this conflict is centered around them simply not knowing who he was. Finally, Peter connected the dots in Mark 8. He realized that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one who was sent to redeem Israel. Yet just moments after Peter's beautiful confession, when he says, you are the Christ, 
Jesus says that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Peter responded by rebuking Jesus. He rebuked Jesus and said, Jesus, you can't die. What kind of Messiah would you be if you died? You can't save anyone if you're dead. You can't liberate us from Rome if you're dead. And Jesus responded to Peter's rebuke, Mark tells us, by saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on things of men. So there were two things that the disciples needed to understand about Jesus, and they were only really getting one of them. First, that Jesus is this Messiah. He's the one who's sent to reign and rule and to save the people. But second, that Jesus needed to suffer and die in order to save the world. So as we return to our story this morning, to this story of Jesus' triumphal entry, we know that the disciples still only understood one of those things. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew that he was supposed to be king, but they still could not wrap their minds around the fact that he was going to become king by suffering and dying. So herein lies the tension of our story this morning. Having reached the top of the Mount of Olives, they look down on Jerusalem. They look down on the valley. They look down on the city as Jesus' city to rule and reign in. And they were ready to ordain him as king. In fact, just a few verses earlier, James and John asked if they could sit at Jesus' right and left hand in glory. The disciples were ready to take the city by storm, and they were ready for Jesus' triumphal entry. They were ready to sit at his right and left hand as he restored Israel to prominence. They were ready for him to reign, and they thought they knew exactly what was going to go down. They were ready for Jesus to come back. They were ready for him to rule and reign. They were ready for all of the crap in this world to be over with. Sound familiar? The story of Jesus' triumphal entry is an example of the disciples understanding in one sense exactly who Jesus is, but in another sense totally misunderstanding who Jesus was and who they were. So we see that Jesus tells two of his disciples to go and get a colt for him, a small horse, and to bring it back to them. We don't know if this was prearranged or if Jesus was using some of his God powers, some of his foreknowledge. But the disciples go and find a colt and they start to untie it. Some of the people standing by ask them what they're doing and they respond how Jesus told them to respond. The Lord has need of it and will send it back immediately. It's like someone walking up, taking my bike and saying, the Lord needs this. <laughs> He'll send it back though. <laughs> And I'm not sure I would be as receptive as those who stood by. And I think this is categorized under stealing and is a little too common in Chicago. <laughs> but in our story this morning, they let them have the colt. Apparently, Jesus' words were enough. And once Jesus had his colt, his triumphal entry unfolded. And so we see that the disciples did a lot of things right in this story. They were right to get Jesus a colt that had never been ridden on, since it was rabbinic tradition, Jewish tradition, that no one else could ride a king's horse. 
They were right to wave branches and shout Hosanna over and over again. They were right to lay down their coats for him to trot over as he rode into the city. In fact, Jesus' entry on a colt even fulfills an Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah. So we know that after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the disciples had begun to believe that Jesus was the true and rightful king. And so they treated him as such. You don't put a cloak on the ground and cut branches from the field and shout Hosanna from, for your friend. You do it for the king. You do it for someone you're expecting to save you. Like military officers saluting the president, a king was treated differently in the ancient Near East. There are numerous Old Testament and extra-biblical passages where kings are treated exactly like this, like in 1 Kings 9 with King Jehu. So after retrieving this colt and having him ride into the city, the disciples led the crowds in four exclamations. First, they cry out, Hosanna! This is a word we hear often, especially around Eastertide. They cried out with their palm branches waving, Hosanna means save. The word is actually used in Psalm 118. It's used in the passage that Dave read for us this morning. And that psalm, Psalm 118, is actually a psalm that was given to the people of Israel to sing as they ascended towards Jerusalem. That psalm was given for them to sing as they took that, as people for generations took that same hike from Jericho to Jerusalem. They were to sing psalms just like that, a psalm of ascents. So they followed that exclamation by proclaiming, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the Hebrew language, the way to say this, blessed is he who comes, is actually a way to just say welcome. If you say blessed is he who comes, you're just saying welcome. And with their third proclamation, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, the people linked Jesus to the Davidic kingdom, to the nation of Israel at its finest with its greatest king. So they linked Jesus to the time where there was no oppressor like Rome, where Israel was a powerful nation, a force to be reckoned with. And the fourth proclamation, the people called out, Hosanna in the highest heaven. And this appeal was calling for the new king to bring salvation to the people, calling for him to make all things new. They wanted Jesus to create a kingdom that would rival that of Caesar. They wanted their salvation to be complete and their enemies to be destroyed. So this is the moment that we're in in the story. The disciples leading the crowds are so ready for Jesus to be king. And as they led their people in the loud hosannas, they welcomed him into the city. They treated Jesus just like a king because he is a king. But the grand show that was Jesus' triumphal into Jerusalem, the colt, the branches, the coats, all of it, it highlights the disciples' great misunderstanding of who Jesus was and who they were. Three times over, Jesus told his disciples that he would suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders of the day. Three times over, he told them that he would die. But rather than listen and understand the reality of Jesus' true kingship, that in order to rule and reign, he would die, that the way up is to go down, that the way to glory is a descent into humility, the disciples fastened Jesus into the Messiah that they wanted him to be. 
They, they fastened Jesus into the type of Messiah that they could sit at, at their right hand and left hand in glory. And so as they looked down on Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives and then walked triumphantly with their future king into the city, they expected him to rule and reign in the way that they wanted him to. They managed to make Jesus an idol, a means to the good life, and a vessel for their own aspirations. And not only do we see that the disciples misunderstood who Jesus was, we also see that they profoundly misunderstood who they were. The disciples thought that they had positioned themselves to rule and reign. As James and John show us, they were ready. They were ready to sit at the right and left hand in glory. The disciples were pretty high on themselves, and they thought that what they needed to be saved from was Rome. They didn't realize that they didn't need to be saved from their bondage to Rome. They needed to be saved from their bondage to their own sin. They didn't realize that the way that Jesus was going to win was not the way that they wanted him to win. They didn't realize that Jesus' path to glory was through suffering, that the way to life was through death, and if it was that way for Jesus, it was going to be that way for them as well. The disciples profoundly misunderstood who Jesus was and who they were. And yet as soon as we sit back and criticize the disciples for their thick-headed inability to understand what Jesus was doing, we must examine our own hearts and examine the ways in which we misunderstand the type of Savior Jesus is and the type of predicament that we're in. As one commentator puts it, what we need most is for Jesus to save us from ourselves. We need to be saved from ourselves. In today's politically charged world, it's not easy. It's easy to think that we know what we need to be saved from. It's easy to think that we know what Jesus needs to do to make all things right, to establish his kingdom. We see this on both a macro level and a micro level. Just like the disciples were the experts on what the world needs and were the experts on what we need. Whether it's knowing what direction this country should go in, this city should go in, these schools or this healthcare system. Whether it's knowing what opportunity you need for life to finally be what you want it to be with your schooling or relationships or career. Or what sin God should just rid your life of. The thread is the same. We think we know what's best. And it's a story as human as our first parents in the Garden of Eden, thinking that it would just be best if they had that apple that God told them they shouldn't have. It's sin at its simplest. And I must confess that this is what I so often believe, that if everything was how I wanted it to be, life would be perfect. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, living in perfection. And just like the disciples on the road into Jerusalem, thinking that they know what things are going to look like. Or maybe you're on the opposite side and you don't feel like you know what Jesus should be doing in this world and in your life. But you sure know what shouldn't be happening. 
and it's happening all around you. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have ideas about how we can change this broken world, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive through word and deed to be more like Jesus, to influence and change our cultures and our communities. But what I am saying is that you are not the expert, that you're a worker in God's field, that you are not the Savior, and that He is in control of it all, and that all of this is on His time frame, not yours. And so the story of Jesus' triumphal entry serves us this morning as a warning that despite our best intentions, Jesus' agenda doesn't line up perfectly with ours. Jesus is, in many ways, a different king than we want him to be, just like he was going to be a different king than the disciples wanted him to be. And it's okay to acknowledge that reality as long as we strive to humbly submit to it that he rules differently than we often want him to, and that there are a million things that we would change if we were in charge of it all. Now, many sermons are preached on the triumphal entry every Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, and they often note the crowds, the fickle crowds, cry out, Hosanna, and just days later cry out, crucify him. And this is an incredible flip that the crowds, that the crowds accomplish. But little more should be expected of the crowds. What should be expected is that the disciples should cry out Hosanna and then still be there at the cross. What they didn't realize was that at the cross, the most proper thing to say would be Hosanna because it means save, and that's exactly what was happening, just not the way that they planned it out. And so the disciples, those who had been with Jesus for years, they too abandoned Jesus. They abandoned Jesus when he stopped looking like the king that they wanted him to. And we do this too. When God won't heal us of our sicknesses or cleanse us from our pesky sins or put a halt to so many of the troubles in this world, we grow impatient with Jesus' kingship. Rather than reflect on all the ways we see God working in the world, in our city, in our church, in our lives, we grow impatient with his kingship and feel like we have cause to abandon him. Yet he never abandons us and he remains waiting for us to be a part of his world-changing kingdom. Where the way to life is by dying to sin, where the way to glory is through suffering, where the way up is down, where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Today's story ends on a puzzling note. The text says in that last verse that he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So after all the hubbub of the day, after all the excitement, after all the proclamations, Jesus walked into the temple in a very ordinary fashion. He inspected things, he looked around, and since it was late, he left. He went back to one of those small towns to sleep in. Jesus walked into the place where he belonged, and no one recognized him, no one knew him. And so he left and went out knowing that his work wouldn't happen in the temple, it would happen on the cross. 
So I conclude this morning asking you this. For just like Jesus walked into that temple that morning to allow him to walk into your life this morning, to let him walk into your heart, examine things, and then decide how he sees fit to save you, to submit to the Savior that he is, not the Savior that you want him to be, to submit to the king that he is, not the king that you want him to be. Whether that's choosing to submit to him for one of the first times or for the thousandth time, let him prove himself to you that he's a savior and a king worth following. He proved himself to the disciples, let him prove himself to you. And when you reach out to him, you'll find that life with him is life to the fullest. And that ultimately his triumphal entry will happen when all things are made new, when he comes back. Let's turn to him in prayer now. Father, we confess to you our desire to control. We confess to you our pride in thinking that we know what's best. Teach us to live as humble servants of you, King Jesus. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.